You're listening to a sermon from the Spring Midtown Church in Phoenix, Arizona. If you'd like to learn more about the Spring and its ministry, please visit thespringmidtown.org or follow us on Instagram or Facebook. A few years back, I worked as a financial and academic advisor at a place called Grand Canyon University. Uh, which, looking around this room, I see some smiles. Uh, yeah, we've got some lopes. Some former lopes, some current lopes, people working there who've gone to school there. And my job, among many other things, was to be a debt collector. Uh, I was responsible for managing the financial records uh, of undergraduate students at GCU. We called those records ledger cards. That was the fancy word for those records. Uh, and just to give you a, an idea of the scope, the scale that I was uh, managing on a regular basis, my last semester there, I was responsible for collecting $5 million in revenue for the institution, uh, my job alone, which meant that for the students who I managed, I could be an intimidating person. Because if they hadn't paid their bills, they knew that I was the one who would call, and they knew that I was the one who could, if I wanted to, kick them out of the school. And that created an interesting dynamic for me with some of my students. These are 18, 19, 20-year-olds who haven't ever thought about what it means to pay thousands of dollars for anything, uh, let alone for school. And because of that, there were two general responses that I saw from students who who needed to pay their bills still at GCU. And I've categorized these two general responses as if they're characters in movies, which shouldn't surprise anyone. So movie references, I love them. The first type of student who would walk in was a horror movie student. The student would walk into the lobby and they'd be eyes wide open and their hand would be shaking as they signed into the, the front desk. And they'd sit down in the lobby and their eyes would be unblinking the whole time. And then I'd call their name from, from the hallway, and they'd, <gasps> like they just saw a ghost, right? Like terrified. They'd walk over, and they'd shake my hand, and their hand would be sweaty, kind of clammy, <laughs> super awkward. We walk back to my office, and eventually I tell them, hey, you've got this amount to pay for these things. I, I detail all that stuff, and I'm as gracious as I can be. And usually they'd get their phone, and they're shaking, like, I need to call my mom to see what's <laughs> Like, just as if they're in the middle of, of a horror movie. And that was because they knew that they hadn't paid their bills. They came in knowing beforehand, I know that I owe money, and I know that this person could kick me out if he wanted to. But there was a second type of person who owed money at GCU. And this person, I would say, uh, acted more like they were in a musical. So they would hop into the office and be happy. They'd sign their name down and sit down on the chair. I'd come in, and then they'd hop, skip, and jump over to me and shake my hand, walk back to the office. Everything's great and cheery, and then we get to the money. And they realize, oh, I haven't paid my bills, right? I inform them that they owe a certain amount for whatever the thing was. And these students immediately become defensive because they believed that they had paid their bills. That's why they were so happy to see me. They thought everything was squared away, and it turns out it wasn't. And these students would argue with me, the one who's like, this is my job. They'd be like, no, 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 you have it wrong. Your records must be off, right? You haven't done the count right. Let's, let's run it back. I know I have this, all these excuses they'd have. And these were the general responses of of multiple students that I dealt with at GCU. And what's fascinating is that both of these responses, the horror movie student and the musical student, they're rooted in their own actions, in their own abilities. For the first one, they were consumed either with, well, the ability that they, or the, the lack of ability they had to pay for school, that they hadn't paid yet. And the second student, they were consumed with the fact that they had already paid school and hadn't. It was always focused on themselves. Their ability and what they had done determined how they approached me as their advisor. And I think oftentimes, we as humans tend to approach God 
similarly. We tend to approach God thinking about all the things that we've done for God. We tend to approach God thinking, have I done the right things, and does that make me worthy of approaching him or not? And because of that, we actually develop our own spiritual ledger cards, either subconsciously or consciously. Uh, we determine how we approach God based on the good or bad that we've done. It looks often something like this. I'm a teacher at GCU, so a whiteboard is just a natural thing for me. So this is functionally what our ledger cards often look like before God. I know this can be tough to see for some of you. I'll turn it or you can get a picture in a sec. We put our good actions in one column, right? So we say, I don't know, I opened the door for someone and let them into the room. That's a nice thing to do. I changed my profile picture on Facebook so that I support a certain cause, right? I uh, don't complain too much about the heat in Phoenix, right? All good actions. We're building up our ledger card. But there's also bad actions that exist. And these bad actions, we don't like to talk about them, but we know they kind of exist, right? We cut people off in traffic, maybe. Or, uh, I don't know, we use the word literally when we really mean figuratively. That's a, like a <laughs> brutal one we do all the time. Bad actions. Um, yeah, one of the worst ones. Uh, I don't know, we dabble in genocide or something like that. Just excessive, terrible human evil, right? And then, underneath all of this, we have a cosmic accountant that we often call God. And God sits below our good actions and our bad actions, and he decides, well, well, let's do the math, right? We've got seven versus nine. Looks like this person is bad, right? And that's kind of it. That's how we view our relationship to God, and this is often how we approach him. And what's fascinating about this is that it's mostly consumed with our ability or inability. We like this system. We put it into most world religions throughout history. It has been about the actions that I take in order to accomplish enlightenment or in order to reach God. We put this into how we work, right? The good things get you promotions and the bad things get you fired. Everything is about a ledger card and we just carry that mentality into our spiritual lives. And God in this equation, well, he's really just counting numbers. We've managed to kind of move God entirely out of the system and just focus on what we do. It's an easy system for us to manage and control. This understanding of God though, it's not the Christian understanding of God. The Bible has something different to say about who God is. Jesus is the Lord, according to this book. And Jesus works differently than as a cosmic accountant. And so today, we're going to chat a little bit more about who God really is in Jesus and who we really are as people who follow Jesus. And once we do that, once we learn what it means to be unified with Jesus, we also learn that we get invited to an entirely new life that's free from this sort of ledger card mode of thinking. It's a life of light, as Paul would say in Ephesians, rather than a life of darkness. If you have a Bible, turn in it with me to Ephesians chapter 5. Uh, we're going to be preaching from verses 8 through 14 today, if you'd like to follow along. Ephesians is the back of your Bible, if you're flipping there. We're also going to have it up on the screen, uh, if you'd like to follow along there, if you don't have a Bible with you. Ephesians 5, 8 through 14. For once you were darkness, but now in the Lord... You are light. Live as children of light. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. Try to find out what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what people do secretly, but everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For everything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, it says, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Paul starts this passage uh, by using a curious phrase. He says that we were darkness. And when I actually typed that into my notes on Microsoft Word, it underlined it as if it were a grammatical error. And it suggested that it should instead say we were in darkness. Right? That would make more sense here. Paul is intentionally avoiding using that language. Why, right? Well, if you're understanding the full narrative of Paul's writings, what he's really getting at is that it's not just that we're in an environment of darkness. It's not as if we're trapped in a dark forest and we just need to get the right path and walk our way out, right? He's saying that there's something more deeply characteristic of our human nature that is dark and has become dark. We were darkness, he says. And this cosmic biblical picture that Paul is working with, it implies and, and understands that humans weren't made to be dark. They were made, well, at the beginning of things, to bring about flourishing to everything in creation. They were made to live in right relationship with God, with one another, and with the world. And because of that, they'd be stewards of goodness. Flourishing and life would come from everything they do. But the world hasn't worked that way. Because we've severed our connection to God, and we've harmed one another, and we've neglected the world around us. And because of that, rather than life and flourishing being the products of our lives, death and decay are the products of our lives. It's something that none of us can escape. And so when he says that we were darkness, he's implying that there's a condition of brokenness, independent of our ledger cards, underneath our actions. And when I look at the world around us, I think this seems to make the most sense of things. Because human history, just upon examination, seems to be a tale about no matter how many good actions we build up on our ledger cards, things don't seem to be getting much better. Our world is falling apart around us, right? Our environment is crumbling. We've got political division. We've got racial division. The same things that have persisted for humans for thousands of years are still around today. And we have tried admirably to fix those things. We've tried education. We've tried politics. We've tried social programs. We've tried psychology. And they've helped. They've done some good things. But all in all, the same condition of darkness still characterizes our hearts and our world. We still have things like pride and covetousness, greed and envy that sit in us. And then we go out in the world and build systems from those dark parts of our hearts. The issue isn't our good actions and bad actions. The issue is not a ledger card. If it were, then we would have fixed it by now. We've been at this thing for thousands of years. We've piled up all sorts of good ledger card items. It hasn't helped a whole lot. But that's not the end of the story. See, Paul is telling us that it's never been about your outer actions necessarily. The dark parts of your heart have always been there from the start of things when we chose to fracture creation. Paul's purpose in this letter is to reveal to us that that darkness no longer reigns in the world. That the darkness that exists in our hearts independent of our ledgers, well, that's not the thing that rules us. That's why he says you were this. It's in the past tense. He's using a present tense statement to describe what we are now, since Jesus has arrived. He says, in the Lord, you are light. And I want to look at both of those statements here. He says, in the Lord, which echoes the same sort of phraseology he's been using throughout this whole letter. You remember in chapter 1, he mentioned in Christ over and over and over again. He's saying that this whole thing is redeemed by the person of Jesus, both our hearts and the world around us. And here, he's kind of pulling back on that same idea. The thing that heals our darkness underneath our ledger cards, it, it's not our actions or creativity or our own brilliance. It's not our ability to escape the darkness. If it were, he'd say, in the goodness of your heart, you are light. Right? Or in the goodness of your actions, you are light. It's, 
dependent on you in that circumstance. That's not what he says. He says, in the Lord, you are light. Light and healing arrive in our lives and more broadly in the entire cosmos in the person of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is saying here. And he now points to a new identity that we have when we choose to give our lives to Christ. He's saying you are light. So again, an identity statement. He doesn't say you are in light. He says you are light. You are characterized by something radically different than what you were before. Something's been changed in you. The ledger card has been cast aside. And we're defined purely by what Jesus says about us. This system has been broken. And that's why Christians call this good news. Because human history, this tale of feverishly acting to try to fix all of the brokenness in our lives, we don't have to live that way anymore. The brokenness has been fixed deep within us by the person of Jesus. We've become light. And God looks at every person in this room and says, you're a son. You're a daughter. I love you, beloved. You don't have to worry about your ledger card in the same way anymore. I've taken on the debt. I've paid it. So come and walk with me. I've got a life of freedom and joy waiting for you. And so that means that when we approach God as humans, we don't approach him like the horror movie student, and we don't approach him like the musical student. We don't approach him with a sweaty nervousness or smug confidence, because the ledger card's been thrown out for us. The God of the universe is not a cosmic accountant balancing our debts. The God of the universe has thrown out that ledger card in its entirety. There's a theologian named A.W. Tozer who talks about this reality, and I really liked how he put it in his book, The Root of the Righteous. He said this, We please him most, God most, not by frantically trying to make ourselves good, but by throwing ourselves into his arms with all our imperfections and believing that he understands everything and loves us still. And since this gospel message isn't based on anything we've done or failed to do, that means it's available to anyone and everyone in the world. There's nothing that anyone in this room has done to warrant the ability to approach God rightly. None of your actions have done it. It's purely been the action of Christ. And that means that any person outside this room, no matter what they've done, no matter what they're currently doing, is free to approach God, is free to receive the love and grace of Jesus by repenting and turning to him. In fact, the only way that someone continues in the darkness is if they keep trying to maintain their ledger card. That's the only way that you don't receive the light of Jesus is by saying, I have figured it out. I know the things that make me good and I'm a good person and look at my actions to prove it, right? Or I know what's really good in the world. I know how to pursue goodness. And so I'm gonna define this on my terms. The only way not to receive light and to continue to live in the darkness is to keep trying to maintain our ledgers. The only way not to live in light is to continue to trust in our own ability to define goodness and truth. And the church is a group of people who collectively decide, can I comment something? Nope. Who collectively decide that this is not the system we want to work with anymore. The church is a group of people who say, I am defined by the person of Jesus and what he's done for me. I'm defined by grace and forgiveness, and I'm given a whole new identity because of what he's done in me. 
God brings light to a world of darkness through Jesus. But notice, Paul doesn't stop there. That's just the first verse that we read together. And the reality is many Christians and many churches like to stop there. They like to say, here's the good news. Come and get baptized and say a prayer, and we're good to go, right? Well done. You've punched your ticket to heaven. But that's not where Paul stops here. He actually says that because we have a new identity, because Jesus has arrived and made us light, it's going to change our actions. We're going to start to live differently. We're going to start to look more and more like Jesus, both individually and as a community. And so the light of Christ, it doesn't just free us from something. It frees us to something, to live differently. That's why he says here to live as children of light. He's saying that our changed identity means changed activity. It means becoming more and more like Jesus every day. Now, to be clear here, Paul doesn't actually bring the ledger card back in. He doesn't say, all right, now that Jesus has forgiven you, now get your stuff together and earn the life that he has for you. Don't start living better because you need to maintain your ledger card. Live better because you've been saved. Your identity is already established in Jesus when you choose to give your life to him. There's nothing you can do to earn it at this point afterward either. In fact, many of Paul's letters in the New Testament are all about how people are still trying to earn the thing that they were freely given. That's the main problem that he deals with in the book of the Galatians, for instance. They still try to use their ability uh, to obtain the gift that's free. And that's kind of a weird thing to fathom, right? I've become something, and I'm also every day becoming more and more of that thing. It's kind of this paradoxical reality of the Christian life. But I actually, I think I've seen it in my own life, and I think you might have something similar as well. Uh, Back in, in January of 2017, something really terrifying happened to me. It was something really shocking, unbelievable, and, and honestly, it's probably going to stick with me until the day that I die. I got married in January of 2017. And it was a joyous day. Don't hear the terrifying part of it as, as meaning that I don't love being married. I do, and that day was great. We danced away the night. We ate great food. We had a lot of great friends. It was a joyful occasion, but it also meant that something had fundamentally changed in me. No longer was I a boyfriend or a fiance. I was a husband on that day because of what my wife said about me. And I wasn't uh, a partial husband. I wasn't a 90-day free trial, though she might have taken that offer if she knew it was on the table. I became a husband on January 28, 2017. But in reflecting on the last four years, I've also realized that every day I am becoming more and more of the husband that I became on that day. Every day I'm learning more and more about what it means to be married, what it means to be a husband for my wife. And being a husband for my wife might mean different things than being a husband if you're married in this room. For my wife, it means cooking a good amount of our meals, which I love to do. For my wife, it means going out to Thai food and tacos on a regular basis. It also means learning how to express my feelings better, because historically I've been pretty bad at that. It means listening to her intently, serving her and submitting myself to her in our marriage. Those are all things that I've learned after I became a husband. Those weren't the things that I did in order to become a husband, right? I didn't earn that. She named that freely on her own volition of me. Instead, these are the things that I do because I am a husband. My identity leads to a new sort of life. And if you're not married in this room, that's okay. There's no like weird Christian calling of like you need to be married and need to have kids to really live out the calling of Christ for you. 
It's not true. You can be single, and this can still be true of you. So this metaphor might work in different ways. Maybe you're a teacher or a lawyer, right? On one day, you became a teacher. The first day you're in the classroom. But every day after that, you're becoming more and more of the teacher that you already are, right? You're a son or you're a daughter. You're becoming more and more of a son or daughter as you go through your life in new seasons and in new ways. The life in Christ that Paul is describing here, a life lived as children of light, it's similar. Being a Christian means that we already have a new identity based entirely on what Jesus has done, and therefore, in this new identity, we allow all the parts of our lives to be changed. Every part of our lives is open for Jesus to speak into. And so when Paul says this here, it's not a do better inspiration, get better and get back on the right track sort of message. He's instead saying, remember who you are. Remember that you're part of the family of God. Remember what that means. Remember the gift that he's given you freely. And because of that gift, look to give yourself away, just as Jesus did for you. He gets into some specifics on what living in the light looks like, living as children of light here. Being children of light means we become characterized by certain sorts of things. He names a few in a row here. He says that our new lives should be characterized by what is good and right and true. Those are three back-to-back, just like bullet points he hits. And a couple of those words are kind of ambiguous to us. We throw around the word good, for instance, like it means nothing. Hey, how's that burger? Good. How you doing today? Good. Those are different things you're describing. Like there's a different emotional experience happening in both of those. Good is something we throw around. The good that Paul is using here refers to a life of benevolence, giving yourself away, a sort of generosity, a posture to every part of your life that says, everything I have is a gift, and I want to see it given away to the world. So living as children of light means viewing our lives as things not to be hoarded, not to be protected, not focusing on our interests alone, but our lives should be things that are given away in every part True, that he says here, that same word, it's another word that we kind of throw around but don't really dig much into. We think of truth, for instance, as just ideas, right? I believe something is true in the world because it's an idea that I understand, right? So two plus two equals four is an idea, right? And we say that's true. Uh, Humans need air to breathe. We'd say that's true. The Phoenix Suns are the greatest basketball team that's ever existed. That's true, right? We just know that's true. Despite what might have happened last night, it's not going to end that way. But the reality here is that Paul is using truth in a much bigger way. Truth is not just an idea ascribed to. It's actually a a change in our lives. It involves living differently. It's sort of this, this moral and intellectual combination of the word. And so that means that the church is not a group of people who simply have access to the right beliefs. We're not a group of people who simply intellectually ascribe to certain ideas. Instead... We're people who look and act like Jesus rather than the rest of the world. We're people who the world can look at and say there's something true there. Whatever truth is, it's in those people because look at how generous they are. Look at how loving they are. Look at how gracious they are. They'll see truth in the way we live, not just in the ideas we ascribe to. So Paul's implication here is that the Christian life is a fully integrated one that involves both your head and your heart and your actions. Truth is not just something to be known, but something to be done. And unfortunately, many people have been turned away from the church because they haven't done the truth very well. 
There's a study done by a guy who wrote a book a few years ago. His name's Pete Scazzaro. The book's called Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, if you're interested in picking it up. He cites a study of evangelical Christians, uh, which are one of the bigger blocks of Christians that we can measure. No study's perfect, by the way. Like, there's always caveats and nuances. But this was pretty telling. Uh, in studying evangelical Christians, uh, he found that statistically, they're just as likely to divorce their spouses as their non-Christian neighbors. They're also just as likely to abuse their spouses as their non-Christian neighbors. They're also just as likely to exhibit racist tendencies towards their neighbors, and sometimes even more likely. And their giving patterns are just as materialistic as the world around them. He quotes a guy named Ron Side, who wrote a book called The Scandal of the Evangelical Conscience. Ron says it this way. He says, whether the issue is marriage and sexuality or morality and care for the poor, the data suggests that in many crucial areas, evangelicals are not living any differently than their unbelieving neighbors. And that's because we've understood truth as an idea to be ascribed to, rather than a life to be lived. Paul is telling us to live the truth as the church. We do that individually, and we do that collectively. And living truth doesn't just mean believing in Jesus as an idea. It means living like Jesus as a person. Being the church means becoming like Jesus. And he keeps playing with the same metaphor of light and darkness as he continues to talk about what being a child of light might look like. He says that we both abstain from darkness and expose darkness in this passage here. A couple different things he's kind of getting at. First, we abstain dark from darkness by setting up structures in our lives that prevent the darkness from creeping in too much. So whereas we might have lived selfishly before Christ, only focusing on our interests, we set up structures that keep us from living selfishly. Structures that allow us to give ourselves away a little bit more. Where we might have been prideful, focusing our lives on our decisions and our career and our things, we now, in Christ, start to live with humility. We start to think about others before ourselves. We consider what's going on in their lives, primarily. We do this with all of those other parts of the darkness, lust and greed and envy. We build structures in our lives so that we can abstain from them. And we don't do that, again, because we, we're trying to earn something from God. The ledger card's gone. We do that because God has called us to be something different. We have a new identity in him. And then he mentions that we also expose darkness here. We don't just abstain from it and keep it over there. Uh, we actually call it out when we see it. And so we as the church need to be people who first call out darkness when we see it in the world. The effects of sin are all around us all the time. You've driven by the effects of sin already at some point today. If you had eyes to see it, it's all over the place. And so we need to call out oppression when we see it in the world. We need to be people who bring healing uh, to the, the broken ecology that's around us all the time. We need to be people who speak life into those who are depressed and anxious and lonely, who want to cause self-harm. That's not the way of light. That's the way of darkness. And we need to call out those things and live differently because of it. But that sort of exposing, it doesn't just go on outside of ourselves out there in the world. It also goes on in here. That means that hiddenness, burying our darkness, has no part in the Christian life. In fact, hiding our darkness is actually a product of the old ledger card way of living. Hiding our darkness implies that I need to maintain some sort of self-image to evaluate myself, that my identity is rooted in who I am and what I do rather than rooted in the person of Jesus. The ledger card causes us to hide things, to bury things, to keep them in the dark. And Paul is saying that because of Christ, 
Our lives aren't about grasping tightly onto how great and moral we are or hiding how terrible we are. Instead, this new life in Christ is about how quickly we can come back to him and back to his community to expose that darkness. The speed with which I return to my identity in Jesus and confess to Jesus, the more that I'm maturing in Christ. If that speed increases, if that gap keeps closing between what I do and when I return to Jesus, that's the sign of Christian maturity and discipleship. That's what this life looks like for us as Christians. And that's because Jesus forgives us every time. Every time. And that means that there's nothing that anyone in this room is currently doing and nothing that anyone in this room has done that can't be healed by Jesus. There's nothing. Darkness is the only thing that can prevent those things from healing in your life, now and into the future. And there's nothing anyone outside of this room has done that, that keeps them from the love and grace of Jesus. There's nothing. And so we need to be the sort of church, the sort of people who can be the most honest about our missteps, who can be the most honest about our brokenness, because we know that that brokenness doesn't define us anymore. And I say this, friends, because I know I need this too. There's a tendency in the American church to put pastors or preachers up on a platform and stand above people and tell the people what they need to do. And I can tell you from personal experience, pastors and preachers are not free from all of the effects of darkness that exist in our world. I walk in the same world that you walk in. And so that means that I need to be someone who exposes darkness in my life as well. I can't be someone that hides. And so I've set up systems. I meet with a buddy of mine every two weeks, and we ask each other really hard and pointed questions, questions that are intimidating, where you have to look somebody in the eye and either lie or admit the darkness that's in you, right? That's the sort of thing. And then the last question we ask each other is, have you been honest with me? We like double down, right? Just to remind each other, hey, this is important. Living a life in the light is what this is about. That's what the whole point of, of being human is, to live in the light of Christ. And so I need to build these things in too. Don't hear me preaching up here down to you all. I have to do the same thing myself. And when we do this together, when we abstain and expose, abstain from and expose the darkness in the world around us, it gets healed. There's a reason the metaphor makes a lot of sense here. Light and darkness can't exist at the same time. You bring light into a room and the darkness ceases to be there, which means that if we bring things like pride and lust and envy and greed and the long list of things that we struggle with, if we bring those things into the light, they can get healed. There's never been a vaccine for a disease that we didn't know existed. We couldn't make a vaccine for something we didn't see, right? There's never been sin healed before it was addressed and exposed, right? We need to address it and expose it and then see that healed in our lives. And so we need to be a church that exposes darkness and that embodies the grace of Christ when it gets exposed. That doesn't condemn, that doesn't throw away, but that welcomes into the love and grace that Jesus has for us. And Paul, in verse 14, he closes this little section by quoting a, a poem or a hymn. He says, sleeper, awake, rise from the dead. Right? Christ's light will shine on you. And he's quoting what most scholars think is an early Christian baptism hymn or song. It was something that was sung or stated when people got baptized. And it's reminding us here that this isn't just a, a purely hypothetical idea, that something has actually happened, that we have died and that we live again. 
That's actually what baptism symbolizes. We go down into the water, and our previous life of ledger card maintenance, our previous life of darkness, no longer defines us. We come up out of the water as new people in Christ, people defined by his goodness and righteousness. And so that means that Christianity is not a new moral code we live by. You don't describe to it because you like the morality, necessarily. I think the morality is pretty great, and I think it works, but that's not the reason you ascribe to it. It's not a fun social club that does nice things. We do nice things from time to time, and there's some social things going on in the church, but that's not what the church is defined by. The church is a group of people who were once dead, mired in our inability to obtain the light that we've been longing for, mired in our own darkness. And we're people who are now alive because we've given ourselves to Christ, because he has made us new sorts of creatures. We've gone down into death, and we've arisen in life because of what Jesus has done. And here's the reality, you guys. I can stand up here and talk all day. I can wax poetic, or really not very poetic, and stumble over my words for hours. I can communicate ideas to you. It's great to do this every week. That's fine. But the point of this sermon, and the point of this sermon series, and the point of this book is to actually get us to live this way. It's saying this life, when we practice this together, we'll see healing all over the world. Because there's a world outside these doors that still defines people by their ledgers, that still defines people by what they do or don't do, that still defines people by their title or their position. But that doesn't define you in this room. You have those things, but that doesn't define you here. We are all defined instead by what Jesus has done for us, by his love and his grace. And that means everyone is welcome here, away from the hustle of trying to prove themselves in the world. We've got a world outside this door that's characterized by consuming and possessing and gaining. And we fill our lives with all sorts of stuff to try to squelch our dissatisfaction. That's not true in here. Instead, we're people who are defined by generosity because we know that Christ has given us everything. Life now and life eternal. There's a world out there that's still in darkness where you can't let others in too close because they might push you away. Well, you can't really let your true self be known because if you did, you might get rejected. But not here. People are welcome in this room because Jesus has died for them. Because there's nothing that can keep them from it. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. The church is not meant to build up walls. The church is meant to tear them down so that every broken person can find a place to heal here. And that starts here in our own hearts and that continues into our day-to-day lives every week. And so let's allow the light of Jesus to illuminate the dark parts of our hearts and shine into the cavernous reaches of our world. Because when we do that together, things start to change. Person by person, community group by community group, service event by service event, things start to change in us. Together, we start to see the light heal the darkness. And Christ made it quite clear, Paul makes it quite clear that when we do this, it's going to be lit. Friends, would you pray with me?